short-term basis and have no pensions or social benefits. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks reached uh, records while treasuries slipped and the dollar rallied. Baidu and Tencent joined rival camps bidding for a Nokia Maps unit that could fetch as much as $4 billion. And China's property prices looked like they could be stabilizing. Prices fell in 47 Chinese cities in April. What can we expect going forth? More on that this morning with Bocom's Hao Hong. That's uh, before we speak with uh, China Market Research Group's Ben Cavender on Alibaba's latest lawsuit filed at the hands of luxury goods company Kering. And last, we have Pinsent Mason's Kate Terry on China's status update as the biggest crude oil importer in the world. Michael Every, Rabobank's head of research, is our guest. Guest host this morning. Good morning, Michael. Welcome to Money for Nothing. Thank you very much. Um, So Baidu and Tencent are both bidding for Nokia Maps. Who do you think wins? Oh, I wouldn't like to say. We'll have to wait and see. (laughs) All right. Well, Wall Street uh, stocks rose to new new record highs on hopes that the Fed will actually hold off on raising U.S. interest rates. Well, the dollar rallied and Greek bond yields jumped on uh, worries that Athens will not be able to make its debt payments. Weak economic data and a rise in Apple shares took the Dow and the S&P 500 indices to new closing highs of 18,298 and 2,120. Respectively. The Nasdaq finished over half a percent lower at 5,078. JP Morgan private bank's uh, Stephen Parker says that when it comes to bonds, even though rates overshot a little recently, the direction over the next six to 12 months or so is probably higher at a gradual pace. We think that's a good thing. We think it's indicative of markets beginning to accept the fact that we are getting back to a more normal growth environment after the really weak start to what we've seen in the U.S., that things are going to get better in the second half. And we think that's why rates are going to rise. You think about where we are globally versus where we were a year ago. Things in Europe are a lot better. We're starting to see China push on the pedal in terms of stimulus a little bit. We're seeing signs of uh, picking up in places like emerging markets slowly. But when you think about a more global recovery rather than one that was more focused in the U.S., Mm -hmm. I think that points to a gradually improving economy. And the Fed is staying pretty accommodative. We think they probably hike once later on in the year. But global stimulus is still very much key to what's going on in markets and with growth. So he sounds uh, fairly optimistic. What do you think, uh, Michael? We still think that the U.S. probably delivers the best overall. Hello? Sorry, yeah, yes. Mike, go ahead. I, I disagree with everything apart from the fact that uh, global stimulus is still here to stay. Okay, so you think uh, global stimulus is here to stay, but nothing else is looking good in your books. Why not? Tell well, us. Well, basically, there are four engines of the global economy, which uh, the previous speaker was trying to address. In the U.S., 
all the data we've seen over the past couple of months have been weaker and more disappointing. All the forward-looking indicators also are turning downwards now. And we actually had a, a speech from one member of the Federal Reserve yesterday saying he didn't expect inflation to get back to its target until 2018, which is not very positive when we've had nearly 10 years of mega stimulus. And at the same time, Europe, yes, you have to admit things are looking a little bit better there. But that's largely because of the fact that oil prices have come down very sharply, which is nothing to do with Europe itself, and because the Euro itself has tumbled very, very sharply, which is actually hurting other economies like America. So Europe's gain is America's loss, and we are seeing that in the data. And looking at Asia, China, yes, maybe there's more stimulus coming, but that's a reflection of weakness and the fact that the economy continues to slow. That's a message I've been banging out for a year and a half continuously, and it's, it's finally sinking in, I think. And Japan, meanwhile, basically is just circling around the plug hole, as it has been for the past 20 years. All right. Uh, well, it's interesting because uh, if you ask the question as to where the investor should look to and how, Stephen Parker is actually betting on Japan. We still think that the U.S. probably delivers the best overall growth in terms of the broad economy. But one place where we're finding a lot of interesting value is actually in Japan. Japan is a trade that started out more as a policy trade. We saw a weaker currency. We saw the Bank of Japan getting really aggressive. And that's what drove the first part of the trade. What we're seeing now is a big change in the corporate sector. Companies, for the first time in a really long time, are focusing on improving profitability, focusing on improving return on equity. Earnings growth is the best in the world right now. And in Japan, we're starting to see the initial signs of share buybacks, of increasing dividends, and a big focus on shareholder return. All right, uh, Michael, I can see you grinning there. Please share your thoughts. <laughs> well, I, again, ag I agree completely about the weaker currency. That's what's been driving it almost entirely in Japan. And in the near term, I think you can be optimistic about uh, buying shares in a or buying, buying a market where companies are starting to buy back their own shares. But I'm a bit of a fundamentalist in terms of my long run view. And I think companies should be spending their cash and actually investing in their operations. I think any company that starts buying back its own shares has got too much cash on its hands. All right. Well, uh, China's property prices look like they're stabilizing. Prices fell in 47 cities in April. Bloomberg's Stephen Engel says that uh, we want to look at the month over month number which tell us about the recovery rather than the year-over-year -year numbers. Year-over-year -year numbers are still continuing to fall uh, because of the base effect, but the month-over-month, -month, we're seeing uh, the decrease in the number of cities that saw home prices fall um, in April down to 47 cities out of the 70 cities tracked. Uh, in March, it was 49 cities. And we're year over year again, 69 cities out of the 70 saw price declines. Uh, in March, we saw 12 cities increase their prices. And that's quite considerable because it had been two, only two the month before, two the month before that, one before that. It went to 12 in March. Now we're getting 18 cities. These are new home prices ex-affordable housing in the month of April, up in 18 cities month over month. Basically, what we're seeing is the three interest rate cuts that we've seen since November, also the relaxation of the mortgage rules, and a number of uh, unwinding, if you will, of the uh, property curbs in China is trickling into the uh, property market and seeing perhaps a floor creating. Mizuho Securities analyst Alan Jin Rich saying home prices are almost at the bottom, and the April numbers that we're getting so far at least indicate month over month that there is a recovery underway. So Frederick uh, Newman is an economist at HSBC, and he says that things are getting better, but we still have a ways to go. 
All the big first-tier cities doing a little better, but the problem is still third and fourth-tier cities. That's where the real weakness lies. And we're likely to see a bit more improvement in the coming months. But make no mistake, this is a very gradual stabilization at best. Uh, we see some house prices increase in Shenzhen, but in other places they are still falling. So uh, let's bring in our next guest of the morning, Hao Hong, who is a managing director and chief strategist at Bocom International Holdings. Good morning, Hao Hong. Morning. So, um, you know, we've seen some property curbs earlier in the year, cutting interest rates to Kindle sales. Were these uh, just false starts, would you say? Uh, I'll probably look at property investment uh, in details. If you look at the year-on-year property investment, uh, we are down 15%. Uh, property investment is a more important leading indicator uh, than inventory sales. So what we're doing uh, in China right now is we are liquidating inventory at a better price. And also we are only seeing recovery in the first tier city. I think third, fourth tier cities, they're probably not going to get any better anytime soon. And uh, why is that? Uh, because they just have too much inventory. For example, uh, in Xi'an, one of the major uh, city in Western China, uh, they have 48 months worth of inventory to clear. Uh, in many, uh, you're seeing a very similar phenomenon in many other fourth, uh, second, third, and fourth tier cities. So it would take a long time for them to clear up the inventories. And so I think a better leading indicator to look at is the property investment, which mm. is still down substantially year on year. Now, is this impacted by the overall weakness uh, in China, the slowdown, uh, and the fact that there isn't any economic activity that is filling all of that inventory in those cities? Uh, I would say a, a couple of factors that contributed to this. Uh, firstly, we way overbuilt in the past few years. And secondly, if you look at the Chinese home ownership, it's about 80%, probably 85%. So uh, it's one of the highest home ownership in the world. So uh, for me, it's uh, quite difficult to see how Chinese families would buy even more houses going forward. You know, because you know most most of the people would have uh, have a house of their own by now. So what is the answer then? Is there one? Uh, there isn't an easy answer. I think we're trying as hard as possible to get rid of inventory, but then at the same time, we are not seeing real estate investments picking up, and that is dragging down economic growth and also dragging down investment growth as well. And that is why uh, we're seeing economic growth continue to trend down. And loan growth, by the way, uh, in the most recent month's data, isn't looking very pretty. So it is a very drawn-out process, and I think you know, for the lower-tier cities, they're not going to get any better. Michael, your thoughts? Uh, well, I think that's an excellent analysis, uh, and I agree. It's a long-run structural problem, and I think we do hear some rather you know, overexcited commentary from others in the market talking about the month-on-month bounce that we saw in some particular cities. But this is a, a story that's going to run and run, and it's going to continue to depress overall growth rates. That doesn't mean that there aren't good news stories out there in the Chinese economy and other areas. There absolutely are. But it can't rely on this particular engine to to drive high levels of growth going forward, as it has done in the past. So how, you know, if you look at the overall uh, economic data, I mean, across the globe, we've just talked about China. But, you know, you look at the U.S. with industrial production, retail sales doesn't look that much uh, like there's any that much more excitement. And uh, Europe, uh, as we said, has shown some green shoots earlier. But uh, could those fizzle? What do you think about the, the picture Globally, well, 
I, I still find it very concerning, to be honest. Uh, I mean, my argument hasn't actually changed on an underlying basis for around 10 years, um, which makes me sound like a you know, stopped clock. Mm. But basically, from a structural perspective, we're suffering from a deficit of demand uh, for a number of various complicated economic and political factors. And we've covered those up with borrowing continuously in various different countries. And we've now maxed out on borrowing. In, in many of these countries, and we're now reliant on pushing down the value of our currencies to try and steal market share from other countries, which is what Europe's doing now with a weaker euro. And temporarily, as I said, the seesaw goes up for Europe and it goes down for the US. But globally, overall, we're not doing any better from that. And really, we have to tackle this underlying problem, and we're nowhere near doing that. How, what do you think? Do you think we could see a pickup, certainly in the US, in the second half of the year? Uh, probably going to be... Uh, a little bit than the first half, but I, I'm I, I'm not a researcher focusing on the U.S. economy probably, so I, I don't have absolute authority over this topic. But then having said all that, you know, we're seeing exports from China is actually slowly picking up, uh, probably because you know we're making things a little cheaper, and also you know external environment, external countries are seeing a little bit of demand pick up because you know monetary easing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're we're actually seeing some improvement in Chinese exports, and that tend to be a global leading indicator uh, for economic growth. So I would say, you know, we're probably going into the a better environment uh, in the second half of the year. But then having said all that, you know, we're, we're just talking about small improvement from uh, from a bad situation uh, to a, a less bad situation. Um, right. What about the dollar strength story? Does that help China at all? Uh, it helps in a way uh, that uh, we can have an excuse to cheapen our currency. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, cheaper currency helps big time. For example, we see a small recovery in Japan. We, we're seeing Europe, uh, European growth is picking up. So I would say that, you know, for China uh, as an exporting country, um, export is still a very important driver of Chinese growth. And, and especially now, uh, investment growth is slowing down. So a cheaper Chinese yuan is actually helping uh, the Chinese uh, economy to recover. So it is not necessarily a bad news if the U.S. dollar strengthens from here. Okay, so cheaper Chinese yuan actually helps. What else, you know, if, if we had a wish list, what else, you know, could the rest of the world do? What's the one thing that they could do to help China? Um, a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the issues that we're facing is domestic driven, especially the housing inventory situation that we're facing right now is because we way overbuilt in the past few years. And there's very little things we can do. And in fact, you know, many of the rich Chinese people, they are exporting their capital to overseas countries and buying properties out there. And that is why we're seeing a, a very strong growth in Australian property price and also the U.S. property price as well. And at the same time, you know, not that many people are buying more properties in China. So I wouldn't say there is a lot to do uh, from an external environment point of view to help China to recover uh, its growth to its former glory. But having said all that, you know, we can export some of our excess capacity uh, to, uh, to foreign countries. And if they can buy more uh, with a, a cheaper Chinese yuan. 
Export is the way. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Hao Hong. He is a managing director and chief strategist at BOCOM International. A quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is up half a percent to 19,984. Australia's ASX 200 is up 0.05% to 5,662. And Seoul's Kospi up 0.04% to 2,114. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.13 US dollars. The US dollar will buy you 119.93 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 14 cents. Well, Alibaba is facing a lawsuit from Kering, a Paris-based luxury brands conglomerate that owns YSL, Gucci and Balenciaga. Kering says that Alibaba has profited from the goods that infringe on its brands and it is alleged that the e-commerce company uses algorithms that help customers find knockoffs. Let's bring in uh, China Market Research Group's principal, Ben Cavender. He joins us on the phone now from Shanghai. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. So, Ben, does this claim have any legs at all? Uh, you know, I think it does. This is, this is something that a lot of brands have sort of been discussing with Alibaba over the years. Previously, it's been very difficult for them to get somewhere because the company uh, wasn't listed publicly in the U.S., now that it is, I wouldn't be surprised to see them uh, pushing a little bit harder against Alibaba to sort of clean up some of the counterfeit issues it has. But uh, Alibaba, you know, has has claimed that it has, in fact, been trying to cut counterfeiting from its sites. I mean, last year it, it punished something like 40,000 sellers, uh, you know, and it's aimed to cut down on the sale of fake products. Yeah, you know, I think it would be hard to argue that Alibaba hasn't done anything to try and make the issue better. But with something like 8 million small sellers on the site, it's pretty easy for counterfeit goods to get uh, up into the sales process right now. Um, I think the issue at hand is sort of how Alibaba manages some of its search phrases and what it does to sort of crack down on those. And right now, it's still very easy to actually put in a search for a fake product and get results. So I think Caring is arguing that they could easily do more than they have done to uh, clean up the site a little bit. Now, eBay has been allowing sellers for years to sell counterfeit brand products. And though people you know, might argue that once a case is reported on eBay, uh, action would be taken. But the marketplace you know, is so vast uh, that even you know, with the human resources of you know, e-commerce like that, it's, it's kind of difficult to actually crack down. So wouldn't it be even more so challenging for Alibaba? You know, it is challenging. I don't think it'll be easy for them to do, but they, they definitely do have the resources in place to probably make a little bit more of an effort that they, than they have, to the extent that even in China you're hearing you know, the SEIC sort of complaining that they haven't really done enough to get rid of fake goods. Um, you know, I think in the near term, you're, you're going to see a lot of those products continuing to exist on the site. But from a credibility standpoint, I think Alibaba is probably going to have to do more than they have going forward just to maintain their own brand reputation. So what can they do? Uh, change their business model? You know, I think part of it's going to be just kind of refining the algorithms and, and controlling the search terms that are permissible as far as what people are putting in to search for products, um, you know, reducing the number of terms that sound similar to, say, some of the luxury brands that are out there. So I think that's part of it. I think maybe having a more robust reporting system for small sellers to get people that are selling 
uh, substandard products off the site. But I think realistically, yeah, the business model probably is going to change. What we're going to see is more of a reliance on platforms like Tmall, which uh, are operating brand-owned stores, or maybe uh, helping to bring back official goods from outside of China into China. So you may see Taobao over time sort of losing some of its significance for the site. And uh, do you think that Alibaba, Taobao could actually face more lawsuits sort of in the you know, days to come? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll have to see what happens with, with Karen here. You know, if they make any headway with the lawsuit that they filed in New York, um, if they don't get anywhere, you may see other brands maybe kind of holding off because they don't want to go through the legal costs of trying to do something. But I think you're going to see probably more complaints going forward, certainly now that Alibaba is more international, that they're trying to reach out to more consumers, not just in China but overseas. The brands are going to start taking uh, counterfeiting issues, I think, more seriously than they have in the past when it was just China. All right, Ben, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Ben Cavender. He is a principal at China Market Research Group based in Shanghai. The Electoral Affairs Commission has published the proposed guidelines on election-related activities in respect of the District Council election for public consultation. You can send a written submission by June 3rd or share your views at a public forum on May 19th. The proposed guidelines are available at the Commission's website www.eac.gov.hk, the Registration and Electoral Office and the Public Enquiry Service Centers of District Offices. For inquiries, please call 2891-1001. The time is now 8.24 a.m. and recent news has seen China overtaking the U.S. for the first time as the biggest importer of crude oil. The Financial Times reported that in April, China had surpassed the U.S. with imports of 7.4 million barrels per day, or 200,000 more than the U.S. Let's bring in international law firm Pinsent Mason Senior Associate Kate Terry. Good morning, Kate. Good morning. So, Kate, what does this say about the shift in global energy demand in uh, just these recent months? I think it's an interesting statistic and clearly China is a significant customer in the global oil market and has been for some time now. Um, and there's probably some opportunistic buying of cheap oil going on at the same time. What I don't think this indicates is a long-term insatiable growth for, for oil in in China, um, there's other factors going on here, and you mentioned the surpassing of the U.S. U.S. is still a powerhouse in, in the global oil markets, and clearly the, the shale boom in the U.S. in recent years has meant the U.S.'s reliance on imported imported oil has decreased. Um, but with the with the lower oil price, some of those shale gas producers are now struggling to compete on a cost basis, so we're likely to see a rebalancing of imports in the U.S. And so I think this is a, um, a sign of the significance of China, that's for sure, but um, not necessarily a, a surpassing for the, for the long term of the U.S. market. I see. What uh, energy markets are most attractive, uh, you know, for China? Um, I mean, a number, really, wherever it can uh, source its oil and gas. The Middle East has, for, for a long time, been a, a big supplier to China. Um, Iran has been a country that's been hamstrung by U.S. and EU sanctions over recent years, so has been a very good supplier to the Chinese market. But we might see that coming off with um, potential relaxation of those sanctions from Europe and the U.S. if a deal can be done on the nuclear piece. Um, and obviously, we've got Russia on the gas side. A big deal was signed with Russia last year 
deal, two big deals for future gas supply. And gas is a very important element of the, the mix of fuel in China and one that's going to continue to increase. I think there's a plan to double gas um, supply in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. And so we'll see gas certainly taking increasing importance in the fuel mix. And therefore, that deal with Russia is a, a crucial one for the Chinese. Kate, there's a huge sell-off taking place in Europe right now as oil majors look to sell off their less profitable assets. Can we expect to see more acquisitions from Chinese majors? I think not necessarily. There may be, again, the odd opportunistic purchase there to snap up a cheap asset. Um, but what we are seeing amongst the national oil companies is actually a retrenchment of their budgets, a slashing of, in, of investment in new assets and new exploration. Um, we've seen the same, same across the resources sector over recent years amongst the commodities markets and the majors actually focusing on, on what they've got and reducing their spending budgets. I think there's also a sense that some of the foreign acquisitions by Chinese oil companies have not necessarily gone to plan over recent years. The acquisition of Nexon was seen as a um, potentially an overspend. Um, so whilst there may be, you know, we may see one or two purchases, I think generally we'll see a cutback of investment by the major oil companies. So we were talking about uh, slower Chinese growth uh, earlier in the show. Is that uh, the reason that uh, you suggest uh, there won't necessarily be a internal growth uh, for oil in China? I think whilst we may see some growth, um, we'll see a, a tailing off of that growth in the same way that we've seen in other commodities markets, in iron ore, in coal, um, that, that tailing off of growth is having an impact on those markets. Um, and as I mentioned, the increase, increasing influence of, of gas in that piece, there's a huge pressure on China to deal with its pollution problem and there, there will be a big shift from coal-based power plants to a, a different mix of fuels. Um, we're seeing much more impetus on the renewable side. Also, um, you know, the biggest sort of consumption of, of oil, or one of the biggest, is, is the, the automobile market. And in China, there is a big shift towards gas-fueled and battery-powered automobiles to try and decrease its reliance on oil and, and try and tackle that pollution problem. All right, Kate, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. That's Kate Terry. She's a senior associate at Pinson Masons. A quick look at the numbers now before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is up uh, four-tenths of a percent to 19,996. Australia's uh, ASX 200 down half a percent to 5,634. And Seoul's Cosby also down one uh, 0.1%, excuse me, to uh, 2,111. Gold is currently valued at $1,223.60 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $66.29 per barrel. So, Michael, here we are at the end of the show and at the end of a Tuesday. What should we be keeping our eyes on as we uh, step further into the week? Well, I think the same as always. We have to try and separate signals from noise and uh, that's obviously something we all have to do every day of the week professionally. Separate signals from noise. Any tips on uh, how to do that? I know it's a wide question, but I'm throwing it out to you anyway. Oh, I can't give away all my secrets. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Michael Every. He is the head of financial markets at Rabobank. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast uh, before we... Uh, 
turn over to the news segment. Today will be mainly cloudy with a few showers, one or two isolated thunderstorms in the morning. The temperature right now is 28 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 88%. Time for the news with Sam Butler. The Indonesian military has asked local fishermen not to help any more migrants drifting in the Andaman Sea to reach land unless there's an emergency. Radio Australia's George Roberts reports. Fishermen have helped about 1,300 people ashore in Indonesia in less than 10 days as Southeast Asia deals with a so-called migrant crisis. It's thought thousands more people fleeing poverty and persecution are trying to get from Myanmar and Bangladesh to other countries by boat. Thailand, Indonesia and Malaysia have all refused to let overloaded boats reach land. In an attempt to stop more people reaching Indonesia, the military has confirmed it's asked fishermen not to help them unless they need rescuing. European Union Foreign and Defence Ministers have approved plans to establish a new EU military mission to combat gangs trafficking people into Europe from Libya. It could eventually include operations to destroy smugglers' boats in Libyan territorial waters, but needs the backing of the UN Security Council. The Libyan ambassador to the United Nations, Ibrahim Dabashi, said Libya's internationally recognised government hadn't yet been consulted about the plans. I think if they need to have any operation on, on, on the Libyan soil or on the Libyan territorial water, they have to, to seek the consent of the Libyan legitimate government. Certainly any resolution by the Security Council has to be agreed upon by the uh, Libyan government. We have never been consulted uh, officially. Thailand's former Prime Minister Yin Lakshinawat is expected to appear in court today for the start of a negligence trial which could see her jailed for a decade. It's the latest legal move against her after her 